Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to episode 33 of Real Talk JavaScript. We have Natalie Cabazard with us today. How are you doing, Natalie? Hi, thanks for having me. Doing well. Excellent. And Mr. Ward Bell, how are you doing? The esteemed Ward Bell. <clears throat> well, I'm in the house. <laughs> but we're what, missing what one. To? We're missing somebody. I, yeah, people are going to go, wait a second. Is this actually the podcast? Because where's John? John is out. He's out and about, but he's not with us today. We are we are fortunate that Natalie is going to carry the whole show. Exactly. No pressure, Natalie, at all. <laughs> oh, boy. Because, uh, uh, yeah, we don't have John today. So this will be, I think, the first time, isn't it, Ward, that John it's hasn't been It's the first time ever, and I'm terrified. Fortunately, yeah. Dan, I think you're going to, between you and Natalie, I'll just be able to coast. <laughs> yeah, well, no pressure on us now, Natalie. So, yeah. <laughs> well, great. Well, let me introduce uh, Natalie real quick. So, she is a front end, in, a senior front end engineer at Slack, and also worked at some other cool places, which she can tell us about a little later. But she works on new the new user experience team, helping new users and team creators get settled into Slack. Prior to Slack, she was a senior full-stack engineer at Zillow Group and worked on GraphQL, TypeScript adoption, React Redux, and AWS. And in your free time, you'd love to do a lot with uh, cooking, it sounds like. Yes, I am just a huge food nerd. Um, I read cookbooks before bed. I cook and bake in my free time. I try as many new restaurants as I can. So, um, yeah, I'm really into culinary stuff. Were you as crushed as I was by Anthony Bourdain? Oh, gosh. It was so <sighs> devastating. I, I remember that feeling of that day so clearly. Yeah. He was He was a really uh, – uh, he meant a lot to me for some strange reason. He meant a lot to me because he went to Iran and did a whole episode and showed the beauty of Iran, which is mostly mentioned in negative light in the news. Um so I was a huge fan of his and read a lot of his books. And as I was reading his books, I would read it in his voice in my head, which made it all better. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was a huge fan and still am. You know, you're right. Uh, that was his signature thing was that he would visit a culture and he would talk about how food was a gateway to understanding a wonderful culture. And all of right. them were open to him. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely the the one thing of several on this planet that everybody I think likes. So that's yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> and you know what? Since John's not on the show, Ward, we're just gonna take over and we're gonna it's a foodie show now. He doesn't know it. <laughs> this is it's a real talk real right. talk cooking. So so do you when you're making a souffle, do you worry about tiptoeing around because it'll fall or not? That's the question we really want to talk about. Well no, if I'm you've kidding. made it well enough, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I've never worried about that. I've been making soup souffles since I was like eight and I've never had one fall because I was stomping around. I really like making pasta because it's hard <sighs> to mess up and then the payoff is amazing because we have this fresh pillowy pasta at the end. It's delicious. I totally agree. And there's something, have you ever done it, Dan, like where you get your hand in there with the, you know, with the egg and the flour and all that other stuff? Oh, 
God. The gluten fingers is what it's they call a, it. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're killing me here. I, you know what? I haven't eaten yet today. So, oh, no. yeah, we're going to okay, have well, to switch so. just because I'm, I'm like, wow, that sounds good. That's I'm starving. Fair. <laughs> so, well, well great. Um, and I'm good at Eggos, toast, yeah. cereal, <laughs> and he pasta, can boil water. Dan can boil, boil water. water. Yeah, I'm pretty good at well, that. That's yeah. half the battle. <laughs> I actually I did, gave a I, conference talk once and drew an analogy of setting up a serverless lambda to server side render React components, and I drew the analogy of that with making pasta. Like so, this part of setting up the serverless function is like boiling the water, and then this part is like making the pasta, and you have to put the thing in the boiling water, and on and on. I don't know. I like it. People laugh. I like so it. that was good. <laughs> so, Natalie, I, one last food qu- question. I, I often, do you think this proposition is true? I say that if any, if you can cook, if you can follow a recipe, you can program. I don't know if that's really true, but it always felt that way to me. Is it something that? I totally agree. And I think the the way I define what an algorithm is to people who are not in tech, namely my parents, is I say it's a recipe. Yeah. I think it's a great yeah. way to explain it. Yeah. Well, awesome. So we are going to talk about, I, I'd love to actually keep going on the cooking part because I, while I'm not good at it, I love it. But uh, I don't know if I'm ever in San Francisco, I'll have to meet up with you too. Sure. So we're going to talk about uh, adopting new tech, and why don't you start us off, Natalie, with some of the things you're doing at Slack or really anything that you're interested in related to that. I know TypeScript's a big thing, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, definitely. So um, after joining Slack, at first I kind of wanted to get my bearings and understand what the stack was like and understand it in the context of you know the size of the company where it's at in its growth trajectory and kind of contextualize it in that sense. So there was a fair mixture of modern JavaScript and legacy JavaScript when I joined, and it's still that way today. But um, my experience back at Zillow had me involved with a lot of TypeScript and a lot of really modern tech um, to the point where I think it was so bleeding edge that it was hugely uncomfortable in a lot of ways um, because there are a lot of questions we had and not as many answers online as we would have liked just because everything was so new. Um, so anyway, having that experience and coming at coming to Slack, I'm kind of trying to understand what sort of technologies make sense to introduce and evangelize here. Um, so something like GraphQL that I use at Zillow wouldn't really make sense at Slack because we don't have a ton of microservices at Slack. Um, and GraphQL really addresses that problem of handling a bunch of microservices and getting the data you need. So that doesn't really make sense. But um, introducing something like TypeScript is more reasonable and more realistic, I would say, and I think would benefit a ton of the developers here. Um, and we can go into why and kind of what the benefits are that I see of adopting TypeScript at Slack. So that's kind of what I'm working on now. I'm trying to talk to various teams and understand who has worked with Slack before and how it's worked at, or sorry, who has worked with TypeScript before and how it has worked at Slack. Um, and then go from there and uh, help people onboard to writing more TypeScript at Slack. That sounds like a really fun job, actually. You get to help people kind of break them in and, and all yeah. that. And yeah, I, I help people break them in as as I'm also breaking myself into Slack, I would say. So um, 
as much as I lean on my fellow front end developers here for support, I also want to offer support to others as we're learning TypeScript. Um, so to answer the question about um, the eagerness or the willingness to adopt TypeScript, I think that was the question. That's where I was kind of going. Like, yeah. like you know, have all these people who have a commitment to their existing code base, the way they've written yeah. it, and you're bringing something else that really challenges that. Yes, totally. And every time I bring up um, introducing TypeScript to folks who are reluctant or hesitant, the usual response is, well, does it work without it? And yes, it does. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a nice sprinkling of types on top that pose, you know, brings so many benefits with it. And that's kind of where I start to chip away at um, their point of view of you know, uh, being hesitant to adopt it. And I find that the easiest way to do that is to kind of remind them of what JavaScript is and then explain TypeScript as something that's much closer to, t- to JavaScript than some other random language that is really different from JavaScript. Um, so I usually say things like, oh, well, you know, if you wanted to create a TypeScript project, you could copy and paste all of the JavaScript from your legacy code into TypeScript files and it would still compile. So it's like totally up to you in terms of how you want to configure your compiler and set the configurations for your TypeScript project. And you you manage kind of how strict you want it to be. So it's flexible. It's much more flexible than people think. But um, I think adopting it with the goal of making it fairly strict is a good goal to have because ultimately that's what's going to prevent really frivolous type error bugs from getting out into production code. Yeah, how do you play that one? For example, uh, like, like what you were saying, you just paste it in there. That works, you're at, yeah, that works great as long as you have that flag on that, that doesn't say you have to declare any. So, right. so you start them off with just the E, you know, anything goes, and then you start adding these restrictions? Yeah, that's kind of how I started learning TypeScript, to be honest. So um, when... My previous teammate at Zillow brought up using TypeScript. I was pretty open to it, but also kind of scared because I hadn't used types since uh, C++ in college. And one of the great things slash awful things about JavaScript is you can pass things around willy-nilly and it'll be fine. But now having to enforce it with types was kind of scary. Uh, So what I did was I started writing JavaScript in TypeScript files and just declared everything as any. So that was step one. And it's like, okay, get used to these anys. Now start replacing a few of the anys with really simple types like string or Boolean and not not dealing with any generics yet or any sort of object shapes yet, but just kind of dipping your toes step by step until you have a file that's completely typed. And then that's like a really good feeling to have as a developer starting to work on something new like this is knowing that you were able to create a file with uh, type strictness in there and that it compiled with no errors. And uh, that's like step one, I would say. And then I love kind it. of that's going a great from, way to go. Yeah, yeah, I think another thing that helps is code reviewing. Um, code reviews that have TypeScript in it if you haven't written it before. Because you start to kind of investigate what these types mean and what the specific syntax is to represent type structure that you intend to impose on the code. Um, 
So I think code reviewing and adding, you know, teammates who are trying to learn TypeScript to code reviews that include TypeScript is a really valuable learning experience for them. Now, have you found uh, as people, you know, strings and numbers and booleans and things like that, like you said, I I love that approach because that's exactly how when I work with various companies, we like to approach it as well. Because, you know, if you if you dive in the deep end and don't know how to swim, a little rougher versus you're kind of starting them out in the shallow end, teach them how to swim a little bit and then move forward. Now, once they get past that, uh, do they typically buy into things like, all right, let's now move to classes or maybe interfaces or what's the next step there? Yeah, I think um, as long as you're having a dialogue with the people that you're working with and talk about how far in you'd like to go with the commitment for, with TypeScript, um, you can start to decide on the strictness level, the configs that you want to have, and then having like conditional types even, or talking about the new features that are introduced with the newer versions of TypeScript that continue to be released, um, which is something that makes me uh, have to be like a continuous learner of TypeScript. I don't ever feel like I'm an expert in TypeScript because there are new things coming out actively since there's such an active developer community and Microsoft is actively developing it as we speak. Um, So there's kind of always a moving target, which is nice. And what I love to do is talk about it with other people so that I can learn from them and then hear about the benefits and kind of the pros and cons to approaching types in different ways, like having interfaces versus simple types and things like that. In in this journey, do you with them? Do you often do you occasionally sort of surface bugs or lack of clarity that where they have an aha moment about how the typing helped them, or is that ever a lever that you can use, or is that just something we imagine happens? Oh, it totally happens, especially with legacy code that um, has you know thousands of lines of really hairy vanilla JS with jQuery um, and a history of an engineering team that's five years old with many people who have worked on different products and, uh, you know, teams. So there are a lot of hacks that you find and a lot of band-aids on issues that may have arisen historically. And when you try to modernize that and bring it up to speed with uh, applying types to it, it kind of uncovers a lot of bugs that existed but weren't yet caught or would only appear, you know, during runtime in the browser. Whereas now you can interact with a compiler that'll let you know what's wrong before you actually go to runtime. So those, all of those aspects of what I just mentioned have proven to be aha moments for the developers that I've seen learn to use TypeScript from coming from like a vanilla JS background. So I have a kind of follow on on that. And now this is a dirty laundry thing, so you may not have to want to answer it, but. <laughs> Did they have good unit test coverage before? No. So So one of the ways that I kind of sold TypeScript is that it uh, it's sort of well having static types act as a form of testing and I know Kent C Dodds has a testing trophy that I've seen before where the base of the trophy is static types. So that's kind of the first layer of testing and then you have unit tests and then you have integration tests and then end-to-end tests. Um, but I love seeing those static types in that testing trophy because it's true. It's it's something that kind of holds you to the contract that you have with the consumers of what you're making so that everything stays intact and uh, 
stands the test of time. Yeah, I think that's a re- that's a really good observation. So there's one that I there's a setting that I'm going to have to move to because there's an open source project that I I have to merge with and they hold to it. And I I don't know how I feel about it yet. I wonder if you have any thoughts on it. I mean, I know how I feel about it. Like I'd like to do it, but I'm scared of it, which is the mm-hmm. strict null checking as mm-hmm. in I have to type it to indicate whether null or undefined or allowed. Uh, have you, uh, you know, right now, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, you have to specify any in my code, but I did, you know, I kind of play loosey goosey with, with null or undefined. Have you turned that one on or is that just a bridge too far for you? I have turned it on in certain projects where it makes sense to, and that it's not so unreasonable to turn it on. So for projects where you're starting from scratch and you sort of have green field as to how you want to implement it, I don't think it's bad to have it on. I think it's actually kind of nice. But in in my situation, being at Slack and trying to move legacy code to modern JavaScript with TypeScript, um, it's a little ambitious. And I think it would turn some people off if we yeah. impose strict null checks and everything just lights up with red and the, they start to become frustrated because I of that. Know, so. That's the thing that scares yeah. me. Is like, I'm going to have this great working project and I'm going to have, you know, this will be fine after you get through a thousand red lines. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, your VS code is going to be working hard to light up all of those type errors. Exactly. Yeah. I'm in that mode as we speak, by the way. Are you trying <laughs> it, Are you trying it, Dan? No, I'm not doing that. It's uh, I'm refactoring. I decided one of my interfaces I'm using is too deeply nested in a spot. And so I'm refactoring that to flatten it out. The properties were kind of nested a little, little more than I decided I needed. But the beauty of it, and this gets back to what Natalie's kind of been talking about, is I got a lot of red and mm-hmm. I know exactly where to go to fix it. So oh, that's, good. you know, whereas I, w- I wouldn't have that otherwise. And that's why I love things like interfaces, as you know, Ward. So, yep. yeah. Oh, that kind of reminds me of something else that has been brought up by people who have worked with TypeScript quite a lot and are thinking about how they can teach and share out what they've learned to people who haven't worked with it a lot. When it comes to reading error messaging, um, some of them can be very verbose and large. And it's like, okay, how do I start to parse through this error message to understand really what's going wrong? That in of itself is kind of one of the skills that you need to learn when starting to work with TypeScript. Um, And just sort of getting an understanding of what the error messages mean. Because once you do, they're very helpful and they're very specific and they point you in the right direction. Um, At first though, it can be kind of jarring to see, you know, all of these, all of these very verbose error messages with references to the types and um, kind of telling you about all of the possible scenarios of what might happen. Like, Oh, this, this uh, field might be undefined but it's a required thing and, you know, things like that. So what I've realized is um, error messages, like there's there's an art to understanding what those mean yeah, too. Yeah, I've forgotten that that's true. And they can get pretty hairy, especially if you're deep into generics. Yes, exactly. You know, our, I ran into one. I, I was kind of a little on the lazy side one day. And so I defined the type as, you know, how you can kind of define it as, it almost looks like an object literal, but it's more of like an inline interface. And anyway, I forgot to put one property. And like you just said, Natalie, the error message was massive because it, yeah. it kind of says, hey, you're missing this 
in this object type. Mm-hmm. And the object type was kind of big. So, well, end of that story, as I said, okay, time to make an interface. But I'm with you. It's a little bit jarring at first. And I think for we do a lot of training with companies as well. And mm-hmm. I think that's definitely something when people see it for the first time, especially in the console, because you know how console is. It doesn't always wrap it perfectly. Right. Yeah, the ellipses. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a little little more challenging, but uh, I think I also think it's one of those things, and I think you'll agree here too that, like any error in C plus plus or Java or uh, TypeScript, once you've seen it once or twice, the next time you see it, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there, done that. That's easy. Yeah, so. totally. One critique I've heard that sort of resonated with me is that uh, you know this was somebody pushing back about TypeScript. It was that. Um, you, you know, developers can get really lost. They can spend hours trying to get the type flow just right. And it's not really moving the project along so much as it is exercising their symbolic skills in, you know, uh, bolting together different type things. And this, this only happens when you're trying to do what look fancy generics and strange things, but you can easily get in lost in the world of type flow and I, I confess I've burned an hour or two in some places before I just gave up and said, screw it, it's any, and I'm moving on. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Is that I've where you go well. to? Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. I mean, we all have like, you know, the point at which our patience just runs out. <laughs> at that point, I think any is worth it to save, uh, you know, some happiness and some joy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've definitely been there and it can be very frustrating and when I was first uh, working with TypeScript, I sort of thought that adding all of those types um, was a level of overhead that I was kind of questioning whether it was worth it or not. But over time, I saw different scenarios where um, the compiler lit up with an error that would have saved us from some really critical bugs that could have gone out to production. And those are the moments where the light bulb, light bulb goes off and kind of reinforces all of the benefits that I know TypeScript offers. So um, yeah, there are times when there's some overhead or maybe your level of type strictness makes it hard for you to comment something out really quick and debug something because everything else kind of lights up in red and the compiler complains of, I don't know, unused variables or um, the requirement to have a field in an object that's now removed, you know, things of that nature. It's, it makes it kind of hard to debug quickly, but I don't find that it's terribly challenging or a huge imposition to your workflow because overall the benefits really outweigh the cons, in my opinion. You know, that's a tough lesson. I totally agree. I, there is a level of despair, though, when you put that one thing in there and suddenly 10 lines of squiggle yeah. up here. <laughs> you're and you don't God. know where it, where it went out. And your my heart sinks when that happens. Me too. Just, so I'm like, okay, how long is this going to take me? <laughs> exactly. But I know, just like you were saying, I know that it's telling me something really important. I've, it isn't just that it's complaining. I've screwed up somewhere. Absolutely. And then when you define types, you start to understand that there are many areas of code where duplication is happening, for example. And um, by defining the type, you understand that many different objects in the same vicinity might have the similar shape. It's just um, slightly different. And then you start to wonder how you could better refactor that so you don't have duplicate code 
or how to extend a type um, when defining another type and things of that nature. So I think it kind of fo- forces you to become more cozy with your code. That's kind of, kind of how I like to describe yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel uh, it, I, the way I always describe it is I, I kind of feel like instead of driving by like the Canyon wall with no, no guardrails or, or bowling, which I'm haven't been in a while. So I'm probably really, really bad now. <laughs> it's almost here. like adding the, you know, the guardrails or the, what do they call those? The, uh, the gutters. The gutters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, those things. And as a new person joining a new company, I would love any sort of documentation that could let me know what any of the code in these legacy files mean, because they can be so nested and convoluted. Like parts of the code are tabbed 14 times inward, you know? So you can just imagine like how nested things are. And that's just the the result of uh, (laughs) the speed of development and, you know, the time and place that that had to happen. And it's evolution over time. So I I really can't blame any one company for having code like that. It's just sort of the nature of the beast. When that happens, someone like me who's joining a new team, who's trying to read through code, it becomes a huge mystery. And I sort of put my detective hat on so that I can understand just what's going on. Whereas if you have some types with some good names, you could really gather a a way larger um, understanding of what's there so it kind of acts as a form of documentation, in my opinion. I totally agree. For example, if I pass you, Nelly, a, a message, and well, let's just say the parameter is called message, but it's not typed. Well, now you got to go dig up to figure out what the heck are you getting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, what type of message is it? Um, exactly. What fields on there that are required? Yeah. And you don't know, and you don't know just because you have one example of it. It could be string, but it's JavaScript. So the mm-hmm. next day it could be. Uh, an object with uh, something interior to it, and it's still a message. Yeah, uh, you never know. Uh, it's, well, it doesn't help with the pyramid of doom, which you kind of described—the you know, fourteen levels of indentation. Oh yeah, so pyramid. much doom. Yeah, but uh, it does help with definitely describing the structure, at least, of what's in the pyramid of doom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so absolutely. So when you try, when you see something like that. You you sort of inch your way forward by adding TypeScript to it uh, to see what it says, or how, how do you how do you take a bad bad thing like that and makes? Or do you feel compelled to try and improve it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So yes, I definitely feel compelled to improve it. I think the approach that I choose to improve it is what's uh, what I've thought about a lot and. When I see like a pyramid of doom somewhere, I wonder whether it's more worth it to add something like TypeScript to it or just start from scratch. Um, with what we're doing on my team, we're choosing the start from scratch approach and then kind of introducing some some helper functions that help with the interoperability between the t- new modern TypeScript files and the legacy files that we still sh- need to keep around because some of the fundamental stuff is in those legacy files. So um, this time around, I decided to just start from scratch because I don't know, I just felt like it was a good opportunity to do sort of like a spring cleaning of our code and sure. understand what are leftovers from you know past projects that were you know deprecated or something like that. And starting from scratch also helps me as a new developer understand how the user experience is represented via the code 
and what the code does for the user experiences that we have to support versus having these like parts, mysterious parts of legacy files that, you know, handle a critical part of the flow, but are too intense for me to, you know, read through and understand what's going on. So instead of keeping those as a big question mark, I'd rather just rewrite it and start from scratch. Um, obviously, I feel pretty lucky having engineering leaders here who are willing to give me the time and the capacity to rewrite something from scratch. Um, but if that wasn't the case, then I would really figure out how I could break up those pyramids of doom even just a little bit and just take baby steps to breaking it up so that it doesn't exist anymore. Well, let's... Uh... Let's talk about that a little bit more and the refactoring aspect, actually, because I think TypeScript has some some really big wins there with refactoring. But before we do that, let's take a moment to break for our sponsors. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. So, Natalie, we were talking a little bit about which I really love to hear that your uh, support team around you, you know, is is in favor of kind of refactoring those pyramid of doom <laughs> scenarios because those are definitely not a good thing for maintenance. Are there any ways uh, that you've seen where TypeScript also can kind of help or types in general when it comes to just refactoring those types of things, though, and you know, maybe moving some code out to new functions or whatever it may be. Um. There likely is. I just haven't experienced doing that myself. I could, I'm sort of envisioning what that would be like and no doubt trying to break things apart little by little into smaller parts and defining the types for those parts would really help eventually move everything over to having um, types. But I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how the clean that would happen. For example, if I moved something out of the pyramid of doom and added a type to it and it lit up a bunch of other instances of the usage of that thing elsewhere, um, I could go down a really long and pain, a painful rabbit hole to, to figure out where I need to add more types and where it's okay to just have any or no types at all. I don't know. I, I think it would be a lot more uh, complicated to add types slowly to a file that is thousands of lines long and extremely complicated. I'm, I'm not sure how that would go. I think you summed it up pretty well. The The goal here is not to you know add complexity. It's actually to remove complexity. 
Right. And so I think breaking down those things, first off, you know, just speaking from my own, I guess, code and experience, because I got plenty of stuff I can refactor. We probably all do, I suppose. But uh, is just to get it working, whether it's breaking down, like you just said, into smaller maybe functions or whatever it may be. And then for me personally, it's oftentimes I'll see like uh, maybe a bunch of parameters being passed in and decide that I want to kind of flatten that out to one single object with a type being passed in, you know, mm-hmm. to simplify it and pretty nice that way. And yeah, another thing that, uh, and, and Ward, you can chime in here because I know you've done a lot that I love in, in tools like VS Code or WebStorm is that ability to, you know, highlight part of that, for instance, that part of that pyramid of doom, right click, refactor, and uh, extract as a function. Because for me, that's been, I'm, I'm working on something right now where I'm having to parse a stream of tokens from Markdown. And in doing that, uh, my goal is, you know, like we all do, I just want to get it working first. And then I get done, you know, a couple hours later and go, wow, this is an absolute like horror show <laughs> going on in the code base. And so, you know, that's where I think TypeScript actually is pretty helpful, though, because, you know, you can, uh, with some of the little right click tricks, and it's not so much a TypeScript trick, it's more of a, VS Code or WebStorm and these other tools, but you can actually have it create some of the types uh, in the tool. And I, th- I found that pretty helpful for cleaning up my mess, I guess you could say. What, what do you guys use uh, at Slack for your, does everybody have their own editor or have you got, have you coalesced around something? Yeah, I think most of the developers use VS Code, but I still see some folks using uh, Atom or really new versions of Sublime. Um, because of the rich development experience of VS Code and just how amazing it is when you have types there, I, that's that's my idea of choice for now. Of course, there will be a newer one with more benefits in the future that we'll anticipate. But for right now, I use VS Code, and um, I'd say most of my team uses VS Code as well. You you mentioned that you have a lot of legacy code. That's even old style JavaScript. So I'm curious about two things if you can tell me about. One is how you, how you, what, what strategy you use for having both non-TypeScript, old JavaScript things sitting there side by side with TypeScript. That's one question. And a kind of related one is that if it's really old, it, it isn't organized into modules. And so what do you do about import statements or, or type definitions? How, how do you how do you get them to talk? So how do you bridge these things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so on my team specifically, um, we're in a unique position where the product, the parts of the product that we own are not only in the Slack app itself, but it's also just on the marketing site, slack.com. So when a new user clicks on an email invitation and goes through a flow to create their account, that's not happening inside the Slack app itself. So we have this um, great opportunity where we're kind of isolated away from a lot of the critical parts of you know the foundation of the app so that we can experiment with things like TypeScript. Um, the, the code that we're developing lives completely isolated from the legacy code. Um, we depend on certain parts of the legacy app on the server side, but those are being modernized as well. So we are kind of working in parallel with a lot of our backend engineers who are modernizing the server-side code so that once we cut over to using our TypeScript application instead of the legacy stuff, it'll be a clean break. 
because I don't know how much there would be an ROI if we wanted to live in this hybrid world of having, you know, our imports and um, our modern JavaScript, but also living with our jQuery uh, legacy pages. Yeah. I don't see a huge value in that. And um, I would rather just start from scratch. And thankfully, we have enough resources here where we can make that happen. Was that a tough sell or was was the organization already on this path with you? Oh, no, it was such an easy sell. I was surprised. I was ready to kind of, you know, prove my point with all of these like pros and cons and benefits and stories and um, proof that there are tools out there and it's community out there that's behind this um, behind this technology as well. But I mean, I landed in an engineering org that already knows all of those things and um, is very open to making it happen. And um, we all have enough space where we we can make it happen ourselves. Um, so I feel pretty empowered to improve what the kind of the code stack that I landed in when I first joined here so that it's a lot better and it'll enable us to iterate on it a lot faster in the future. Do you have any specific APIs within Slack that you're actually creating like any type definition type files for, or at this point, is it more of just developers, you know, create the types, the custom types uh, as needed? Yeah, right now um, we're creating custom types as needed, especially because there are a few teams working on TypeScript at Slack. It's not that everybody is trying to create types all the time. I'm sure over time there would be some great developer tools or maybe our front end infrastructure team could work on how they can make our type gen a lot more efficient. But for now, it's definitely a custom for every team. And related to that, from a server side perspective, um, because you know, obviously at some point we got to get that data in a data store somewhere. And I'm, you know, some companies do this, some don't. So your answer might be a quick, no, we don't do that. But is there anything you do on the server side that tries to sync up any types that are shared between those environments? Or is everything pretty much standalone? And that would be, for some cases, that's a good intent. Where well, What is your server side tech? Is it, is it uh, are you Node uh, and JavaScript there or are you running something else? Uh, it's PHP. And I know oh. that many developers hate on PHP, <laughs> but we really like working with PHP and we have a blog post talking all about um, why we like to use PHP on the back end. But we're migrating over to using Hack, which is a technology from Facebook. And um, that means we are rewriting a ton of our PHP and adding strictness to it and rewriting Smarty templates to be XHP templates, which ends up resembling React JSX, actually. It's kind of oh. cool. Um, when I've interacted with certain XH, XHP templates, I haven't found it to be such a foreign territory compared to writing React components. And you can you can weave props from the server side to the client side using XHP props when you're mounting a component. It's kind of cool. So um, I think long term, once there's type strictness on um, our server side code, which will be kind of inevitable, it's going to happen, we could find a way to thread type definitions from the server side to the client side and prevent um, duplicate definitions. I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah, and it's always a tough one, right? Because you have your, some people call them data transfer objects, which are 
which are kind of shared. And then, you know, sometimes you just have the, uh, for instance, GraphQL, uh, you may not need any of that because you can just let GraphQL kind of drive the data with yeah. the queries that you do. So I, yeah. I think it really depends. Um, on that topic, I know you had mentioned, uh, I think, was it at Zillow? You had done some uh, work with GraphQL a little bit? Yep, that's right. Yeah, and what, uh, you know, I think one of the big things we can shift to real quick towards the end here is, you know, you hear microservices, 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 Mm -hmm. but GraphQL does so much. Tell us real quick about your experience there. And from a JavaScript developer standpoint, is it pretty easy to integrate with that and those type of things? I think the the big misunderstanding I had with GraphQL when I first learned we were going to adopt it was that I thought that there would be performance boosts to using GraphQL instead of getting a large payload back from many microservices and having to pick and choose what fields you need off of that payload. Um, I thought that there was going to be some sort of like inherent performance boost when using GraphQL, but that's actually not true all the time. Um, it just acts as that layer in between the client applications and the many microservices that your organization might have. So um, in terms of like request latency, that'll still carry through if you have GraphQL in between your client side and your microservices. Um, so there were a lot of performance enhancements that we uh, tried to make. And debugging it was, I don't know, I, th- I don't think it was so simple because you have to kind of measure the latency from the client to the GraphQL layer, from the GraphQL layer to the microservices and any routing that happens um, on the server side too. So anyway, that was a big misunderstanding I had that I learned after implementing it, that it doesn't give you performance gains out of the box. Um, Also, I found that when I was using GraphQL, I had to define GraphQL types. And then our client code was TypeScript. So we had types on that side too. And there were a lot of instances where I found myself spending time defining types on in our GraphQL layer and also in our client application. Um, eventually, we found a way to just generate TypeScript types from GraphQL types or vice versa to save us time, to save us duplication. And um, so that was that was an interesting experience. And uh, as you know, from the point of a JavaScript developer, it wasn't so hard to get up and running with GraphQL because we used Apollo client and Apollo server and their documentation is pretty great. But at the time, I was trying to understand how our platform team had set up and configured the usage of GraphQL for us engineers um, during the, in my team at Zillow. And there were a lot of questions about how how I would use it what the um, where the requests should actually live. And when it came time to kind of figure out the organization of our client app that was written with React and TypeScript, we were wondering whether to kind of co-locate our GraphQL fragments with the React components that it related to, or if we should have one root-level query in our project that would execute the query for all of the data that we would need as props in our React components. Um, and there were some learnings in that too. I won't go into a ton of detail, but I did a talk at GraphQL Summit last year going into a ton of detail about our learnings working with GraphQL and it's on YouTube if you just search my name. Um, but yeah, overall, I didn't think it was uh, a negative experience working with GraphQL. It was pretty great and it addressed the problem that we had back when I was working at Zillow, which was that we had, um, it was hard for us to 
get all of the data that we needed efficiently from microservices that were both old and new. And a lot of the old microservices return these massive payloads that have an effect on your performance client side. So um, it really helped us streamline that process. And I really enjoyed working with it. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Ward here, inviting you, no, encouraging you to attend the Dev Intersection Conference in Orlando in June 2019. Dev Intersection is one of my favorite conferences and is perfect for those of you whose JavaScript life intersects the Microsoft ecosystem. John Papa, Dan Walline, and I will be there speaking and giving workshops, and so will many of my heroes. Look at that list of terrific speakers on the website and be impressed. These folks are as eager to meet you as you are to meet them. The opportunity to talk directly to speakers and share experiences with other attendees is why you should go. It's why I always go and come home with fresh ideas about topics I knew well and insights into technologies I've been promising myself for weeks that I'd get into someday. This conference kicks doors in. Learn about it at devintersection.com. Mark your calendar for June 10th through the 13th, 2019, and get a discount when you sign up with the code PAPA, P-A-P-A. See you there. Well, thanks, Natalie, for the info on uh, GraphQL. Ward, did you have anything else you wanted to go into on that before we do a final wrap-up at all? Well, it wasn't, I mean, the GraphQL thing opens up a whole, you know, we could go on about that. I mean, I loved where you were going with that, and I just wish we had time to, to pursue it. Yeah. Um, what I want to do though is I want you know I was as I was listening to you talk about the journey of getting TypeScript into your organization, you kept coming. You, you kept saying, "Well, I was worried about this," and then ah, fortunately, the culture was right for it. And before the show, you were talking to us about you know this is you you just relatively recently moved to Slack, and you therefore you were out there looking around and trying to find a place that was right for you. And I'm sensing a culture was right for you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the things that were important to you. You had your pick of any place you could go. You're living in San Francisco. The world's your oyster. Uh, but somehow, uh, certain kinds of things mattered to you. Can you talk about those? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I really enjoyed the work culture at Zillow when I was there. It was a very supportive culture. A lot of smart people who were very humble and willing to help you and also willing to learn. And I kind of wanted a similar culture in my next role. And I just got a really great sense from the people who interviewed me at Slack. And I had heard amazing things about the uh, the values that Slack has and tries to embody day to day. And after joining, I experienced that firsthand. It's a wonderful place to be. Um, and especially on the engineering team and on the front end team, there is a sort of um, playfulness where People do great work, but they also don't take it so seriously. So we have a lot of fun working together and helping each other answer the questions that come up, come about, um, which is a great place to be when you're joining a new company and have to ramp up on all of this new code. But also in the position that I was in where I was trying to improve legacy code on our team, I was met with a lot of willingness and openness to what I was um, talking about. And ultimately, I realized, you know, they hired me for a reason. They hired me because of the experience I have and what I know. And I'm sure they would love to have me affect positive change by introducing something like TypeScript. Um, so that definitely played out much easier than I had envisioned. But it's, I think, a testament to the people who work at Slack and uh, makes my job a lot easier. Well, I heard you say the word fun there. And I think yeah. that's, you know, you got to enjoy your jobs. So that's great oh, to hear yeah. that you... 
you've so had that fun. in kind of both both places. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all the info about what you've done to not only bring people up to speed with TypeScript, but some of the lessons learned and all the other experiences. Um, sadly, as Ward said, I I wish we could just keep going on and on. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> this is that one day I actually have some time today, but sadly we can't. So what we like to do before we wrap up is uh, we like to give someone, we call it a someone to follow section. And it's just really anyone on uh, usually Twitter, but it could be just mentioning their name as well. Um, So I'll go ahead and kick things off and then uh, we'll kind of go to everybody else here. So I have a a buddy of mine, I think one of uh, the big things that no matter if you're doing front end or back end or whatever, is we all eventually get sucked into the cloud at some point, it seems like, with some type of service. And uh, one of my friends named Mike Pfeiffer, it's, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's Mike underscore P-F-E-I-F-F-E-R. He has a great newsletter on kind of all things cloud. So if anybody is interested in that, it's not only dev, but it's also DevOps. So it kind of does both of those things. Um, so check out Mike uh, Ward. You have anyone that you'd like to list this time? Well, and just to broaden the possibilities here for you, Natalie, uh, my pick is actually not going to be someone, but it's something. It's uh, the 2019, and I got this from John, so he's not here. I can give it. Um, it's the 2019 survey at uh, Stack Overflow of um, of the community that uses. Uh, Stack Overflow, and and it talks yes about which technologies people use, but an awful lot about their demographics. Uh, you know how when did they learn? Uh, start learning? Uh, how long have they been doing it? And uh, I of course found myself in the one percent uh, when it comes to the how many how old you are <laughs> category. Oh gosh. Uh, but I think it's an interesting survey. It looks at gender. It looks at uh, it's the best it can about um, uh, uh, ethnicity and and uh, where you know educational background and stuff like that, as well as like which technologies are the Stack Overflow season. Some people try and use this to sort of say my tech is winning, and I, I don't I don't quite see it that way. I, 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 I if you're if you're up there in the upper reaches, then you're you're winning as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I'll put it in here in the in the uh, show notes. Definitely worth checking out. I just saw somebody on uh, Twitter post that. And I was reading through it. A lot of interesting info in there. So, uh, Natalie, we'll save best for last. Do you have anyone in particular that uh, you think people should know more about? It's kind of hard. I I'm not so involved with Twitter as much as I maybe used to be, but Someone I really enjoy following on Twitter is Anna Picard. She is um, she's she's kind of the voice behind the Slack voice on Twitter and the voice that we have uh, with our customers when issues arise. And um, a lot of the reason why Slack is so fun and a playful place is because of her tone and the words that she chooses to use. So she's not she's not. Um, She's not an engineer. She's not really in the tech world in terms of being involved as a developer or something. But she, her, her tone and her voice on Twitter is so enjoyable to read and have in my feed that I think others could also enjoy it as well. Um, her humor, her sense of humor is amazing. It's hilarious. And it brings a lot of joy. 
So Anna Pickard. Anna, so A-N-N-A, and then P-I-C-K-A-R-D. Excellent. Uh, now, I can't let you go. Can't let you go because we talked about food and, and cookbooks in the front here. So uh, I'm going to first, I'll lead. I'm going to say the book that I want to read most is The Fat Acid Heat, which I have not <gasps> read yet. I have that. Yes, I highly recommend it. Oh, great. <laughs> and so what's next on your your food-related the reading I'm, I'm working through the Food Lab right now. It's a very thick and large cookbook, but it goes into the science of why certain ingredients react to heat oh. and fat and uh, just nice. certain processes of like making them a certain way. I don't know. I just, I'm like learning about the cellular structure of a potato and wondering why mashed potatoes become all gummy after a while. So it's really interesting. I love that book. It's called The Food Lab. Is that oh, uh, and who's the author of that? Because yeah, I, is it Kenji? I'm Kenji, looking that up. Yes, right now. Kenji Lopez. Lopez yes, and he has a restaurant called Worst Hall in San Mateo that I have not been to yet, but he's kind of a local Bay Area chef. Very nice. We'll add that as well. So there's. Did, did you ever read that Michael Pollan book about the four? You know, four separate foods. The, you know, the history of them. One of them is the apple. Oh no, I didn't. Um, oh gosh, I. I, I Ah, it's killing me because one of the great things about Apple, I did not know this. Um, I'll just leave this one with you, is that uh, the whole Johnny Appleseed. And back in the day, apples were not for eating. And Johnny Appleseed wasn't out there sowing seeds uh, for people to grow trees for apples for eating. It was to make Applejack. Oh, they were not eaten. They made Applejack out of it. So I, that, that book is full of facets. I think there's a chapter on the potato. There's a chapter on... Marijuana, maybe uh, I don't remember. It's, it's it's been years, but I I recommend it to you. He's a wonderful, wonderful writer, Michael Pollan. Yeah, well, him and the author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat worked together on his book, and then that lended to her writing her own book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. So there's a lot of uh, yeah relationships there. Anyway. So there's our next podcast. We're talking food. <laughs> there next you time. go. Here's all I know. I'm going to go eat now. You're, all making, <laughs> yeah. you're making me hungry. Now, me too. So. Well, thanks so much, Natalie, for coming on. That was some great info. We really appreciate it and uh, hope your your job, the fun word, just sticks there the whole time you're there. That's Thank awesome. Thank you. I hope so, too. I'm sure it will. Knock on wood. <laughs> well, well, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealTalkJS. 